go ahead and admit it. You press play because you wanted to hear me talk about Will and Jada. I'll talk about Will and Jada, but just just give me a minute, okay? I want to talk about this pandemic because it seems like the pandemic has been going on for four years. It's really only been going on for four months. And I want to talk about the pandemic because it really started for a lot of people in a weird way. It started when Rudy Gobert of the Utah Jazz uh, tested positive for the coronavirus. It shut down sports. And then the way our society works is that it shut down everything else because we prioritize celebrity. But a weird thing happened those first few weeks of the pandemic. We were at home. Everything was shut down. You know, we didn't have live sports. You know, there really wasn't a lot of original content on TV. And so what happened is, is that in addition to a whole bunch of other things that got exposed, our healthcare system, our educational system, the power of celebrities became exposed. And that's very important. Why? Because not only do we prioritize celebrity, we allow celebrity to dictate moral code and social policy. This is, of course, very dangerous because it's allowing people with money and access to dictate public policy. And what we see in this country is that the interests of people with money and the interests of people without money are often very different. With that said, I want to reintroduce Malcolm X's commentary on black entertainers. I just told you a little while ago, these leaders that they call leaders, this included Lena Horne, this included Dick Gregory, and this included comedians, comics, trumpet players, baseball players. Show me in the white community where a comedian is a white leader. Show me in the white community where a singer is a white leader, or a dancer or a trumpet player is a white leader. These aren't leaders. These are puppets and clowns that uh, have been set up over the white community and or over the black community by the white community and have been made celebrities and usually say exactly what uh, they know that the white man wants to hear. Now, later, of course, Malcolm X actually introduced to Gregory um, at an event. I want to say it was December 1964 at the Audubon Ballroom, uh, which is, of course, ironic because that was the same place where uh, Malcolm X was assassinated. But to the general point, uh, Malcolm later introduced Dick Gregory to that crowd as a freedom fighter. With that said, I want to focus on what it means to have a celebrity as a policymaker, both in terms of, of policy and both in terms of moral code policy. You have to look no further because there's some guy who had the show called the apprentice who uh, inexplicably uh, is the president of these United States. And we all have seen how that has gone. Of course, Trump has taken, you know, doing a horrible job to, I mean, unprecedented levels, but I do want to talk generally about celebrities and, it's this happens a lot. There are a lot of celebrity missteps that are associated with celebrities not having the range to talk about uh, social issues and real world, real world issues. Not all of them, but a significant number who cannot speak to uh, certain challenges in our community. This is particularly true for black folks. And this is where we get to Will and Jada, because I believe that Will and Jada, well, I believed that they had a unique opportunity uh, when they, you know, we're going to have this conversation, you know, on the red table, talk about relationships. Um, I believe that they had a chance to uh, speak to people in a way that will be open and honest and refreshing. Uh, it, of course, devolved into uh, something entirely different, mostly because of one particular word. You and I decided we were going to take our space and what happened? Yeah. And then I got into an entanglement with 
August, an entanglement with August, an entanglement with August, an entanglement, an entanglement, an entanglement with August, an entanglement with August, an entanglement with August, an entanglement, an entanglement, an entanglement with August, an entanglement with August, an entanglement with August, an entanglement, an entanglement, an entanglement with August. Into an entanglement with August, an entanglement with August, with August, with August, an entanglement with August, an entanglement with August, an entanglement with August, with August, August, August. Entanglement with August, an entanglement with August, an entanglement, an entanglement, an entanglement with August, an entanglement with August, an entanglement with August, an entanglement, an entanglement, an entanglement with August. Okay, so I had every intention of cutting that song off much earlier, but the beat was riding, so I had to let that thing ride, y'all. Forgive me. At any rate, an honest conversation, or what should have been an honest conversation, devolved uh, into one, or was defined by one word, because Jada was not entirely honest in a way, uh, in how she described uh, her tryst or uh, affair or whatever it was that she had with August Alsina. This is not to place the sole blame on Jada because clearly Will was complicit. Um, you know, they had a split. And of course, there have been history of well, rumors of Jada and Will having an open marriage. And so what we have is, is that we have a history of ent entanglement. And for the last week, let's face it, everybody's been talking about entanglement. But on this episode of Making a Difference, I want to talk about detanglement. And I want to talk about detangling because I want to help us to not only detangle, from celebrity culture, but I also want to help us detangle some of the conversations that we're having politically and that we're having socially, because what we're allowing now is that we're allowing not only celebrities, but we're allowing people who do not have our best interests in mind to dictate public policy for us, to dictate moral code for us in a way that affects our personal and our professional lives. Should I wear a mask? Should I send my kids back to school? These are questions with sound, logical answers, but these are also questions that forsake those answers because those questions have become politicized. So here's what we want to do. I want to cut through the entanglement. I want to not only cut through the red tape, but I want to cut through the foolishness because our lives and our relationships are literally at stake. Um, to, be a Negro, to be a Negro in this country and to be um, relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage. Almost, almost all of the time. You wonder why I spit the truth, but not to make no dope. To make a difference. Welcome to another episode of Making a Difference. I'm your host, Ken Macon. So glad you guys are checking in. Oh, man, I'm so hyped. I'm actually uh, recording this the day before my birthday. Tomorrow I turn 37, if it be the Lord's will. I'm just I'm just grateful, man. I got a lot to be grateful for. I appreciate your support of the podcast, you know, for you all listening and sharing and, you know, just having uh, the conversation along with me. If you want to support the podcast in the spirit of my 37th birthday, you can do that in one of two ways. Uh, you can uh, make a one-time donation through Cash App. It's dollar sign making M-A-K-I-N, a difference show. That Again, that is dollar sign M-A-K-I-N, a difference show. You can also support 
Uh, if you want to be a month-to-month supporter of the Making a Difference podcast or the Making a Difference show, uh, you can uh, do that through Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash Making a Difference show. Again, that is Patreon.com backslash Making a Difference show. Uh, speaking of support of the show, I want to shout out my man, Sherrod Sockwell, uh, his young brother who is the owner of Saki's Sweets uh, in Aiken, uh, but he is uh, based throughout the CSRA. Uh, he is uh, has actually um, one of our new partners and is... Uh, Someone who is going to be advertising uh, with the Making a Different Show in the in the very near future. Uh, you know, we've talked. You know, people talk so much about supporting Black business. Uh, this is in that vein, but beyond that, uh, it's just supporting a dope product. I've had the good fortune and look and have gained a few pounds during this quarantine. Um, you know, uh, in support of businesses such as uh, Mr. Sockwell. So uh, shout out my man Saki. Peace and love to you, brother, and keep doing what you're doing. And quite simply, I will do the same. And that takes us into this conversation about detanglement. And if, I want to start it from the pers- from the perspective of Will and Jada, uh, because what happens is, is that, again, you know, we, we allow celebrities to define uh, conversations in terms uh, of relationships. And I, I think that's largely unhealthy because um, the the reality of Will and Jada is different, I would say, from the average person's uh, Will and Jada are worth a combined uh, $300 million in net in net worth. Uh, Will, I believe, is uh, is worth somewhere around in, in the neighborhood of $250 million. Uh, Jada's around $50 million. So combined, uh, they are, uh, look, a, uh, a a force in terms of wealth and are certainly, uh, uh, like I said, are very intimidating uh, in terms of their influence. But before I get into the specifics of their relationship, and, I, and, I, and to be honest with you, I really won't even get into the specifics of their relationship uh, aside from the fact that it's not my business, there's just so much that we don't know. Like what we know about their relationship is what they want us to know, which is such an important part of the conversation when it comes to celebrities. What I want to talk about is, is how uh, celebrities position themselves in this role of self-help. And, you know, are they really qualified? Are they really adequate in that role? Is it something where uh, it's something that focuses more on the mental health aspect? Does it really help people? Or is it more relating to entertainment? I've had this conversation in the past in regards to folks like Steve Harvey. Steve Harvey, of course, who uh, ascended to where he is now, largely on the strength of a book, of two books that he wrote, um, along the lines of thinking, um, think like a man, act like a lady, or something to that effect. I may have that backwards. Well, just looked it up, and it looks like I don't have that backwards. Think like a man uh, is, you know, was, was that series that Steve Harvey engaged upon, and as we look back, those books really didn't age well. And I think, you know, for, for most of us who were, or for a lot of us, I'll say, who were discerning in that time, realized that this was a hustle. You know, this was a uh, this was a, a scheme in a way that was designed more so to promote his career as opposed to promoting actual self-help. And I don't think this is limited, uh, limited to celebrities. I think there is a lot of, you know, there's a lot of this prevailing um, kind of uh, careerism I think that takes place and it's very dangerous because as we're saying in this pandemic, and I I would just say independent of the pandemic, there are people who are really broken and, you know, who are really just in a, in a bad way or, and just, you know, feel, uh, or just, you know, have low self-esteem and feel a certain way about themselves because of the relationships and because of the situations that they've been in. And again, I must say, Will and Jade are in a different place than a lot of other people. Again, it's rumored that they have an open marriage. So, of course, you know, the parameters of an open marriage are different than people who uh, just 
a, a general traditional idea of a monogamous relationship. But within their context, context of an open marriage, they have a bunch of options. And those options are largely, you know, um, contingent upon the fact that they're rich. They are beautiful people. They have access to other beautiful people. And so here we are, you know, with this conversation and people listen to the Red Table talk and they came back and, you know, most of us made jokes about it. Uh, but what happens with these conversations and it's so hard to find nuance on social media, but what breaks my heart and what is disappointing to me is that at the end of the day, what you find is, is that largely people are, are largely unable to find a common ground because most people, you know, go back into their experiences into something that happened to them personally. And so on social media, it devolves into a battle of the sexes, you know, men ain't this and women ain't that. And that's so unhealthy uh, just in terms of, you know, in terms of platonic relationships, much less intimate relationships. I will say this before I move forward. I am no relationship expert. Uh, I am uh, look a proud husband. I've been married now for a little over five years. I'm grateful for my wife. Uh, she's amazing. We have, you know, what's the cliche thing? People say, you know, we have our ups and downs. Uh, what we have for one another uh, over a five year period is uh, we have look a son for one that, you know, just like I said, my pride and joy. But we have a mutual respect uh, for one another that uh, was something that that was forged. And, you know, out of that and within that mutual respect, um, there's an understanding of, you know, you have your opinion. I have my opinion. We come together on some things, just allowing each other the space and the grace to be individuals within the context of a marriage. And I think that has helped us as we grow in our marriage, as we build as husband and wife, as we build as a family. In that regard, we are extremely fortunate because I hear the war stories. I, you know, have conversations with single folks, you know, who say, you just don't know how it is out here. And I'm inclined to believe you. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh at your, uh, your plight. Don't mean to laugh at your pain. I'm simply remarking upon just the world that we live in. And I'll be honest with you. When I, when I look at these conversations on social media, the first thing that I say is, is that it would be ideal and i and i mean ideal like that that is exactly the word i mean it would be ideal if people could um put aside their personal uh, experiences and just look at the look at this idea of mutual respect and that is of course an ideal it is not the reality but i will say this in order for us to have healthy relationships um there has to be a, a certain degree of of conversation, there has to be a certain degree of understanding. And what I find is, is that when we talk about general relationships, I find that these things also apply to not just intimate relationships, but just the relationships that we have with one another as human beings. Um, you know, just as people who are working toward causes, I know this happens a lot, you know, when people say, well, you know, we want to uh, look at, you know, things that are going on in our communities and we want to meet um, and, and try to mutually agree on some things. You know, the thing about all, all of us being different is, is that we're going to have different means of wanting to get there. But there just has to be a certain spirit and a certain understanding of of mutual respect in order to make these things happen, to make these things happen, make these things happen. And so it goes with relationships. I don't want to talk in circles today. I want to be very clear because there are a few things that I really want to discuss on this podcast. I will say this for someone I'll say this for just people in general. 
whether you're you're wanting to be in a relationship in terms of like I said, an intimate relationship, uh, if you're interested in someone, or if you're someone who's just trying to, you know, who sees things going on in your community, um, and you don't like how those things are going, and you want to change them. The first thing I always say for a person is is that you have to know yourself. The more you know yourself, and the more you're honest with yourself, um, the more that's going to help you in terms of. Uh, whatever it is that, that you're wanting to seek in terms of a relationship, like I said, with an individual or in your community. It's important to be honest with yourself because really the what what defines a relationship is are, are two things, honesty and communication. And the way, like I said, when I look at relationships, what I see is, is that if you ever sit down with, you know, two people who fell out for whatever reason, what you'll find is, is that at some point there's a lack of honesty, there's a lack of communication, even in the dating process. Um, when I was dating, one of the things that one of the standards that I as best as I possibly could try to hold myself to was that if I was serious about dating someone like taking a relationship to the next level, if you will, you got to let other people that you're talking to know. And I know some people are like, well, you know, that's that's not fair and different things like that. It's all about mutual respect, because when two people come into a situation you want everyone to have a certain level of flexibility, especially if you're not, like I said, if it's not a, a monogamous relationship, if you're not in a committed relationship, create the culture of, of honesty very early on. If you build a relationship on a lie or a series of lies, invariably those lies are going to um, expound and extend themselves in ways that eventually are going to cause conflict within your relationship. Now, of course, relationships aren't that cut and dry because feelings get involved. But I do want to just set that as a default, because like I said, I really don't want to harp on this because we can have conversation about relationships for hours. And honestly, I think that would be a better conversation to have in terms of a dialogue, maybe have my wife on the show or someone who wanted to talk about relationships. So I'm, this is mostly just, you know, me talking about not just my experience, but my ideology in terms of relationship. I'll be honest with you on this pod. First woman I ever made love to was my wife. I grew up, like I said, believing in the power of a monogamous relationship uh, that was, you know, based in my religious faith. Um, it is a faith that has served me well to this day. I understand that, you know, when it comes to religion, when it comes to uh, relationship preferences, those things are not universal. But I will just say this in closing is that whatever your rules of engagement are going to be, let those be known up front. Don't play around with people, man. Like we living in a time where like, <laughs> like people say in general, like I don't have time for games. Like right now, like, yo, we really don't have time for games. Now, I'm going to go ahead and go to commercial. Now, I know some of y'all saying, well, that's all you're going to say about Will and Jada. That's all you're going to say about relationships. I know for a fact that as soon as I tell you what's coming up next on this podcast, you're going to stick around. Next up on Making a Difference, I want to detangle this Nick Cannon situation. You're listening to Making a Difference. My name is Lauren Macon, and you are listening to Making a Difference with my handsome husband, Ken Macon. This is Donald Doe and Michael Doe with Family Financial Consultants. Do you need help with Medicare, with affordable mortgage and life insurance, building an estate for your child? We provide these types of services for you and much more. As independent insurance brokers, we take pride in coming into people's homes and not only saving them money, but changing their lives. Imagine only paying a few dollars for your medicine instead of hundreds, or cutting the cost of your insurance premiums. Our goal is to provide affordable policies tailored to your individual needs. Give us a call at 803-293-8915 or 706-503-3933. 
Family Financial Consultants, LLC, located at 412 Edgefield Road in North Augusta, South Carolina. Agents work for companies, but a broker works for you. Too often, we're left wondering what happened, how it happened, and who made it happen. Too often, that is because we don't know enough about the functions of our local and state governments. Remember this, knowledge is power, engagement is crucial, and you can influence your quality of life based upon the choices you make on Election Day. Please follow me, Janice Allen Jackson, for the Local Matters Podcast here on SoundCloud. We will be interviewing candidates for various offices, and we don't want you to miss it. Why should you follow Local Matters? Because local does matter. Welcome back to Making a Difference. I'm your host, Ken Macon. As promised, I want to talk about this Nick Cannon situation. I'm sure you've heard by now that uh, Nick Cannon uh, and Viacom CBS have uh, parted ways because of some anti-Semitic comments uh, that Nick Cannon made uh, on uh, his podcast, or I believe it was his podcast, um, in a conversation that he had with a former member of the Public Enemy rap group, Professor Griff. Entertainer Nick Cannon is apologizing for what he calls his hurtful and divisive words about the Jewish community. In a recently surfaced podcast, Cannon referenced anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Viacom CBS has severed ties with him. Jerika Duncan is following the story. Jerika, good morning. Good morning to you, Anthony. Hours after his termination, Cannon called out Viacom CBS as liars and demanded the rights to his popular program, Wild and Out. He claims he reached out to Viacom CBS officials before he was fired to apologize, but the corporation, which is our parent company, denies that. And now the media mogul is left explaining why he says he now feels ashamed. Atlanta, make some noise! For more than 20 years, Nick Cannon has loomed large as an actor, host, and premier entertainer. But it's a conversation with a former member of the hip-hop group Public Enemy, rapper Professor Griff, that has been called into question. You can't be anti-Semitic when the Semitic when, when we we are the Semitic people, when we are the same people that you who they want to be. That's our birthright. That's our birthright. The nearly 90-minute interview was part of the podcast Cannon's Class. It was recorded Welcome last year but class. resurfaced this week uh, after excerpts made their rounds across social media platforms. In uh, one section, Cannon describes what he says are problems with people who don't have melanin in their skin. They're the ones that are actually the true savages, and then they built up such this, this I don't want to say warrior, but they built up such this 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 conquering mm-hmm. uh, barbaric mentality that they're coming out of Europe. They then said, in order for us to survive, we have to take what's not ours. He went Europeans, on to explain why he believed Jewish people mm-hmm. rule the world. When we talk about those, <coughs> the, the, the six corporations, when we talk, when we go as deep as the Rothschild, centralized banking, those, the, 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 the 13 families, Uh, the bloodlines that control everything even outside of America. Those comments led Viacom CBS to cut ties with Cannon, writing Viacom CBS condemns bigotry of any kind and we categorically denounce all forms of anti-Semitism. 
While we support ongoing education and dialogue in the fight against bigotry, we are deeply troubled that Nick has failed to acknowledge or apologize for perpetuating anti-Semitism. But late last night, Cannon did apologize for his comments via Twitter. They reinforce the worst stereotypes of a proud and magnificent people, and I feel ashamed of the uninformed and naive place that these words came from. Look, I understand the uh, importance of talking about Nick Cannon's about face. <laughs> you know, I understand how um, how that has changed, um, you know, almost in what, uh, I mean, less than a week's time. I also, you know, under, look, <laughs> you know, would be remiss if I didn't, you know, remark upon the irony of that. I, and I think it's an all-encompassing um, converse, uh, conversation and, you know, recap of what happened. But as you heard in that clip, I mean, that was a, a comment or excuse me, that was a report from. <laughs> I mean, from CBS, I mean, which is uh, which they mentioned that Viacom CBS was the parent company, the ability to tell your own story, the ability to craft, um, you know, a, a narrative or an idea, you know, and however you see fit. I mean, is a part is really a part of the conversation. With that said, I want to deal with Nick's comment, uh, Nick Cannon's comments within the context of how he missed a huge opportunity. Because in the midst of Black Lives Matter, in the midst of the conversation that we're having right now in the aftermath of uh, George Floyd being murdered um, at the hands of police, of all the things you could talk about. And again, this is a conversation that happened a year ago. Um, but how in the world do we get to a point where now we got these sound bites and all of this stuff that uh, these callbacks of this conversation where, you know, you're talking about conspiracy theories and different things of that nature. The stuff that's happening right now in this country. Um, the history that we have in terms of uh, post-Civil War, in terms of slavery, there are so many different resources that you can draw upon in this moment where you don't have to look at conspiracy theories. You can look at the reality of what's happening in your face right now. Had Nick Cannon done that, he might have found um, some information about Judah Philip Benjamin, who served as the Attorney General, Secretary of War, and Secretary of State for the Confederacy. Um the first Jewish American to serve on an executive cabinet in American history. He has received the title, quote, Brains of the Confederacy by scholars for his apparent position as Jefferson Davis's right hand. Again, this is not uh, I'm not bringing up uh, Judah Benjamin uh, as an indictment of Jewish people. I am remarking upon the importance of nuance when you're going to have a conversation about black Israelites, a conversation about black Israelites. I mean, you can have a conversation about blacks being the first Jews independent of being anti-Semitic. Why risk your platform? Why? Why put yourself out here on Front Street for uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan, a man who I personally, um, you know, take with a grain of salt because of I understand the dynamic between him and Malcolm X. And I, as y'all saw at the beginning of the podcast, I think the world of Malcolm X. So I understand uh, the conflict there. But over the past few weeks, we've seen celebrities, you know, um, tangle up uh, this idea of black nationalism and they use, you know, the teachings of uh, Louis Farrakhan to justify this anti-Semitic commentary. It's not necessary. And what Nick Cannon has done, and, and, I, and I really want people to understand because, you know, folks are saying, well, uh, Viacom's going to be worse off without Nick Cannon. Uh, Nick Cannon, he's going to stick to the bag. Uh, let me just help you understand what's going on here. Viacom, net worth. $13 billion. Nick Cannon's net worth, $60 million. And that's why Nick Cannon is walking some of these comments back. Because he's in a position where, hey, Viacom's got the better hand. 
But why risk your brand? Why risk your business in a way that not only puts you in harm's way, but puts a lot of your colleagues and the people who are working with you and working under you in harm's way? You got to understand, again, the time that we're living in. We're living in the middle of a pandemic. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, like there's not a lot of original content coming out by celebrities right now. If you think about like your favorite comedians, with exception of maybe somebody like Dave Chappelle, a lot of the comment, the content that you're seeing is rehashed or recycled content. Sure, it's stuff that still makes us laugh. But in an event where, you know, somebody like Viacom wants to say, well, hey, we're going to take all of your content and we're going to throw it out. What are you left with? Another issue with that is that if you're going to take a stand like that, uh, you have to take it and make sure that your stuff is intact. And again, this is why Nick Cannon has had to walk some of this stuff back because he is not in ownership of the Wild and Out brand. And that was the part of it. Like I said, you know, in addition to the anti-Semitic part and like I said, really just missing the moment in relationship to Black Lives Matter in relationship to the, you know, anti-police uh, commentaries that we're hearing fam you didn't even have ownership of, of of the brand of a billion dollar brand and it's in this moment that we really have to be mindful of the temptation of black nationalism within the context of black liberation because and just even like i said those of you guys who've been listening to making a difference to listening to the show you know how i feel about capitalism you know um the commentaries that i've made in the past about martin luther king malcolm x fred hampton you know uh, folks such as those And my approach to black liberation, you know, when I talk about anti-racism and anti-capitalism is I do those, I I say those things in a way that challenges white supremacy, that challenges systemic racism. Are those topics controversial? Absolutely. But you know what I don't have to do on, on making a difference? I don't have to walk those comments back and I don't have to walk them back because I'm smart enough to understand that. When you build a truly anti-racist and anti-capitalist coalition, much like Fred Hampton was able to do, like I said, in his basically in his teenage years and, you know, in very young adulthood, when you challenge the system and you challenge the establishment, you're going to draw in people from from all walks of life. Um, You know, when we talk about true diversity and true multicultural coalitions, that's what you do when you challenge the system. Nick Cannon put himself in harm's way because he attacked a certain religion or religious people with affluence. And it wasn't necessary. Look, I talked about walking back comments and I do have to walk back one comment because if you guys have listened to the Black on Black podcast, which was amazing. And the comments and the and the like I said, the response that I got from that podcast were amazing. Thank you all so much for that. I think I said at one point there are 300 million black people in America. I got excited. Y'all forgive me. It's 42 million. (laughs) I apologize for that. I do want to um, present an alternative um, because I understand that some people were inspired by Nick's commentary, however wrong that it, you know, that it was. I want to submit a powerful commentary from Sister Soldier um, because there was a time where she had been compared to uh, the uh, to David Duke. Uh, she had been compared to a Klansman and she clapped back like this is the way you go at the establishment and this is the way that um, you set yourself in a part in a way where you show that you are radical, where you show you're for black liberation, but you also show that you ain't finna take nothing from nobody straight like that. Sister Soldier does not own a gun, has not shot or killed anyone, did not invade Grenada, Panama, Nicaragua, Kuwait, or Angola. Sister Soldier has not ever ordered the National Guard into anyone's community, 
has not made drug deals with Noriega. Sister Soldier has never been a member of a terrorist organization, has no history of crime whatsoever, has never lynched white people, burned crosses on their lawn, or hung them from trees. Sister Soldier has not systematically denied people the right to study and enjoy their culture in the so-called public educational system. Sister Soldier did not send the Haitians back to Haiti as though they were subhuman. Sister Soldier did not kill the native Indians under the guise of friendship. Sister Soldier did not cause or inspire police brutality, did not beat Rodney King or shoot Philip Pinnell, never shot a little white girl in the head for stealing orange juice and killed her and let her murderers go free. Sister Soldier did not vote on the Simi Valley jury and let criminal cops go free. Sister Soldier did not create the economic conditions of South Central Los Angeles or any other urban area for that matter, did not create an environment of insecurity that forced young black men into gangs. Therefore, we can conclude that Sister Soldier is not a racist, nor is any other African leader or African person in this world able to be a racist because they do not have the power to collectively and systematically beat down and destroy white people, European people. Does not have the power to deny it all, refuse to discuss it, and silence, intimidate, harass, and hunt down those who take a stand and fight back. Yes, I am angry, which means that I am sane. Only an uneducated and misguided African person would not be angry at the racist white transgressions of this society. You're probably wondering who, uh, <laughs> look, who had, who made Sister Soldier snap like that? Uh, Bill Clinton did. Bill Clinton was the one who went after her. And this is why we gotta, there's so much detangling we have to do as a society. You know, we gotta detangle, I believe we gotta detangle ourselves from the two-party system. We gotta detangle ourselves from, like, these empty politics that don't, attack people who engage in fascism you know who engage in uh, intimidation and i'm gonna talk about that on the second half uh, of this episode of making a difference i do want to encourage you to listen to that entire 20 minute uh, interview with sister soldier because it is powerful stuff but in terms of the conversation that we just had about nick cannon i want to shout out my man uh, robert green uh, just a like i said dynamic brother who uh, actually teaches at claflin uh, i should say dr robert green uh, my apologies uh, who actually teaches at Claflin University. Uh, but he shared a piece uh, from, actually from his friend and colleague at Claflin, uh, Andre Brooks Key, uh, wrote something uh, on religiondispatches.org. Uh, and this, like I said, it's a really important piece. He said, before we before we scold Deshaun Jackson and others for anti-Semitism, we need to talk about chosenness. Um, and that is, you know, this idea that black people are the true Hebrews. And like I said, this is uh, it's a very uh, important and all-encompassing uh, commentary. So I would encourage you guys, like I said, to uh, check out that commentary. Um, and also, like I said, read uh, this piece from Andre, uh, Andre Key. Uh, before we scold Deshaun Jackson and others for anti-Semitism, we need to talk about chosen. And she ain't got nothing else to do. Look, we're supposed to be quarantined and still and, you know, trying to stay at home as much as we possibly can. And with that said, we'll be back with making a difference after this record. I cannot stop listening to this song from Black Thought. Oh, my God. Black Thought. Thought versus everybody. If uh, there's look, there's a little cussing in it. So if you're listening to this podcast with children, I'm going to ask that you fast forward uh, to uh, about the 38 and a half minute mark. We say 38 minutes, uh, maybe 38 minutes and 45 seconds. With that in mind, stick with us. You're listening to Making a Difference. In just a few moments, we will hear from the most powerful black man in America today. 
Y'all in fear of the kneeler. Everything's obtuse, nothing is obscene. Another young life was lost on live stream. Another great fell from grace and high steam. Then the clock struck 13, we in some kind of dream. First, I'm handling the first thing. Decipher what it means to a planet of earthlings. Where the question remains, am I a journal, a journalist? Herbal eternalist, Olympic tournament level genius, author affirmative. No turning back and returning, I'm not concerned with it. The permanent ink paved the way out the turbulence. My hands against the wall outside a billiards hall, I hear police discuss. Whether to try and kill us all, I question if that'd matter. Life's like a tree that falls in the woods, even with our phone footage to see it fall. Great men chose the paper, mate, pen, a state pen. The firing pen of a pistol aimed at a playpen. We go from musket to a missile, to a revelation between heaven and Satan. While I'm steady creating and trying to separate the truth from the lies that they told us. I even heard the Soviets, the 45th POTUS. That ain't the photo they showed us or accepting the owners. Did they watch some toners? My condolence to y'all diplomas. Here's a bonus, the point of view to make things see through. If I'm a walking institution, I'm an HBCU. Face the music, keeping it moving is one of the great things we do. Yo, the devil trying to put together his gang, me too. And whether you come from Lagos or Trinidad and Tobago, you can either stay broke or be wealthy as Jeff Bezos if you just stay woke. I was in the dark and they broke. Direct the questions to my ancestors until they spoke now. Inherently rocking the disco currently. Bars is cryptocurrency, hypnotherapy, shitting on everything. Five, nine, six, four, lurking, crystal clarity. Wonder how I spit so thoroughly. Stay so hungry, rappers can't get no mercy that's the reason any other one who spit won't first me you're so lonely in my own class formerly known as the description that your headstone has on my own path in my own world like disney's i feel the fucking system fail just like kidneys up steps the one who upsets all carriages cause it's imperative we change the narrative yeah and that's thought first everybody listen check it out they go to everybody yo i got myself over everybody yeah every goddamn body It's the West Coast Diva. Tell them, follow the leader. It's yo, yo. You're listening to Making the Difference with Ken Making. Do you need insurance for your car, home, life, or business? Then trust Jay Harvey, your Allstate insurance agent in Evans, Georgia. He opened his agency in 2017 because he loves helping and working with people. As a husband and father, he understands the importance of helping families prepare for the unexpected. You can get a personalized insurance quote today by calling 706-434-8106. Jay's office is located at 3118-8 William Few Parkway in Evans, Georgia. Remember, you're in good hands with Jay Harvey, your neighborhood Allstate insurance agent.
I want to encourage you to support independent black media. Portrayals of our people in mass media often come out with a spirit of either disinterest or seem to be disingenuous. It's not enough for outlets such as this one to be professional, but also passionate because the issues that we talk about here are very personal and specific to black people. You can make a one-time donation to the Making a Difference show via Cash App at dollar sign making M-A-K-I-N a difference show, or you can become a month-to-month supporter of the Making a Difference show through Patreon by going to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash making M-A-K-I-N a difference show. Thank you for your support. What's going on, everybody? It's Knife Wonder right here, man. And you're checking out Making a Difference with my man, Ken Macon. Keep it locked. Peace. Welcome back to Making a Difference. I'm your host, Ken Macon. I want to wrap up this episode uh, in a way that, look, <laughs> I'm supposed to be detangling, but at the same time, I got to tie this episode together. So <laughs> I want to talk about detangling uh, from the way that we do our politics. And I just I don't want to just talk about the two party system. I want to. Uh, Since we're talking about the pandemic, I want to talk about, you know, kind of what what we've done and what has happened over these last few months um, to create just really a a, spirit of desperation um, that I think, you know, exists in a lot of us and has caused a lot of anxiety. While at the same time, you know, I know I live in South Carolina, you know, and back and forth between South Carolina and Georgia In South Carolina and Georgia, you have two governors who have uh, unrepentantly um, tried to push. you know, push the economy forward um, at the expense um, of human lives, you know, and to, you know, and that's basically what you have with a lot of these discussions about COVID-19. When people talk about reopening schools and, you know, getting back to work, um, what they're saying is, is that they're literally willing to risk your life um, for the sake of a dollar. And I can make that very specific for you. Check this quote out. We don't have our capital stock hasn't been destroyed. Our human capital stock uh, is uh, ready to get back to work. And so that there are lots of reasons to believe that we can get going way faster than we have in previous crises. But that, I just- that was Trump advisor Kevin Hassett, who literally understand, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, folks, we went from essential workers to now folks, you know, workers being considered or being called literally human capital stock. But this is the type of language that's used in a hyper capitalist society. This is the type of of rhetoric and the decision making that that surrounds it. You know, this is this is why there's so much of the reopening energy. But clearly there's no there's no nobility associated with uh, with the process so that we had the pandemic um, and, you know, folks were at home. Some people were getting unemployment. Um, Do you had uh, officials, uh, Lindsey Graham, Tim Scott? You know, that we're saying, well, there's, you know, we, there's an issue with um, people making more money on unemployment than they're making on, on wages. You know what? I, listen, I can play it for you better than I can tell you. Our nation is built on the dignity of work. What this bill does without fixing it is it simply says you can earn more money by being on unemployment than you can while working. That is an incentive that is perverse. We cannot have intended to encourage people not to work and make more money than to go back to work and receive your normal pay. Under this bill, the $600 payment on top of state benefits actually allows people 
to have their income almost doubled in certain circumstances. And I want to help people. I want to make sure that you, if you lose your job, that we cover your wages. But under this bill, you get $23.15 an hour based on a 40-hour work week not to work. My God, where to begin? Um, <laughs> it's the wages stupid. It's not unemployment. The problem is, is that wages are too low. You're paying people slave wages, which is why making a difference is advocated for a $20 minimum wage. At the very least during the pandemic, if you have, you know, somebody who's making $11 an hour, which again is not a livable wage. Uh, if we're going to call them essential workers, pay them double that. So now you're paying them 20. And I think I've said this on a previous podcast. Um, pay, now you're paying them $22 an hour. Once that overtime kicks in that time and a half, now they're making $33 an hour. If you're going to call them essential workers, if you're going to say they're important, then pay them like they are important, period. Our failure to do right by the workforce, because again, you got folks who think they're a human capital stock. Now you're in a position where you're sending people back to work and they're working for nothing. Uh, you're putting them in harm's way with the pandemic. The other thing that, that happens in this country that's ridiculous is, is that people's health insurance, health insurance is tied to their employment. Let me remind you that over 40 million Americans have filed unemployment claims. So you have people without jobs who more than likely are not, who don't have health insurance. I want to say the numbers, because again, those are just the claims. I want to say there are 5.4 million um, Americans uh, who during this pandemic have lost their health insurance because it was tied to their employment. We talk about the pandemic in terms of healthcare, and that is significant. But at some point, we have to talk about the unemployment pandemic. We have to talk about what this is going to mean for healthcare. For, I mean, excuse me, for health insurance. We also have to talk about what this is going to mean for like a you know a housing crisis, because now because in July, um, a third of Americans were not able to pay their mortgage. All of these things are in play, but you got morons like Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott playing politics, and they're doing it at the same time that corporations are seeing gains. It's literally the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poor. So to review, got the pandemic, people getting unemployment, uh, GOP, you know, uh, legislators are, you know, crying about it. So you send everybody back to work. All right. So you send people back to work. You did not flatten the curve. Um, you're still not paying people a livable wage. That right there should have been enough to cause or to inspire a revolution. And to be clear, when we look at you know what happened to George Floyd and you understand that this was a flashpoint it's a flashpoint because of Black Lives Matter it's a flashpoint uh, because of anti-police sentiment but it's also a flashpoint because so many people are fiscally and financially desperate and it's like I said earlier in the podcast you got to understand that there's a function of race um, as well as wealth disparity and class that that ties all of these things together and what's happening in the midst of all this desperation is that uh, your your GOP legislators are becoming more relentless. the The argument about mask is not a, is not a, is not an argument. I'm disappointed in not only our legislators, but I'm disappointed in the media that tries to make this a both sides argument. And it's not about both sides. Wear the mask. This is where I'm at with it. If you're not able, if you're not as a legislator, if you're not able to govern in a manner that says that where you can follow you know, a scientific methodology, something as simple as literally just put on a mask. If you cannot adhere to that, if you cannot mandate that, or even if you don't want to mandate it, if you cannot, in, a, in and I'm, like I said, definitely masks need to be mandated. But if you cannot in good conscience um, speak to the issue in an urgent manner, 
then you need to resign your office. Local, state, federal, who give it up. I'm looking at the dumbest governor in the country, Brian Kemp, the worst governor in the country. I, I don't want to say it's not close because, like I said, DeSantis in Florida, uh, McMaster here in South Carolina, piss poor job. Kemp has gone so far as to, and this is, like I said, this is, you know, political um, jostling and different things like that. Y'all know how I feel about Keisha Lance Bottoms. Look, I, I, look, I said my piece about that in the last podcast. This clown Kemp has gone after Keisha Lance Bottoms, has sued her because she's mandated a mask in Atlanta. Of all the things Brian Kemp has done, because he was not worthy and was not fit to be governor um, by virtue of what he did as a secretary of state, um, you know, of his campaign of voter suppression. Um, but you were elected governor. I mean, you have nothing positive to show, you know, for, for your time as governor. You appointed Ke- Kelly Loeffler, who, I mean, Brian Kemp uh, said he filed the uh, suit against Keisha Lance Bottoms and, um, and said, it, said that she was engaging in a re- uh, rec- uh, reckless political um, activity or something to that effect. But your appointment for Senator Kelly Loeffler literally went to a closed door meeting of Senate Republicans about coronavirus and sold stock. So insider trading, which again, should have been a deal breaker, but she's in the mix for Senator. And you can just go down the line of missteps by uh, right-wing Republicans. And what are Democrats doing? What they always do, which is stand pat and say, well, What the Republicans are doing is so wrong. Well, you're in a position to challenge them. Challenge them with actual legislation. Uh, Dianne Feinstein um, in California, her her grandiose idea for legislation was, hey, here's an idea. Um, The states that um, that don't want to that don't want to mandate masks, we're going to take their funding. So, okay, like take a state like Georgia. That doesn't hurt Kemp. It hurts people like the folks in Albany, Georgia, who at one point, that was one of the hot spots in the world for the uh, for COVID-19 cases because they had the huge breakout after the um, after the funerals. So you want to take resources from folks like that because Brian Kemp is a moron. But these are the type of politics that we have to detangle ourselves from. And the way that we're going to have to detangle ourselves from these type of politics is, is that we have to be more aggressive in the way that we challenge these politicians. And we have to use the methods at our disposal uh, to protect ourselves, to protect our families, and to protect our kids. I said this the other day on Facebook. Um, one of the most disappointing things that I'm seeing in terms of the whole school reopening rhetoric and, and different things like that is, is that as a parent, I know parents who will literally go up to the school and will get in a teacher's face for reprimanding their child. Just for reprimanding the child. Didn't put a hand on the child, nothing like that. But you have folks and you have uh, school board officials and you have education uh, staff and folks like that, education people who are in like a role of administration or in a role of legislation who are saying, we're going to send your kid back to school in the middle of a pandemic. And these people don't have a mumbling word to say. And I get it. I'm not insensitive to the why. The why is because you're, you've been put in a state of desperation because of the economy. I get it. You don't want, you can't lose your job in the middle of a, of a pandemic. But why do we work? We work for our kids. Our kids are our why. So you mean to tell me that you're gonna throw you're gonna throw your kid in harm's way for what? For the economy? Because you can't find childcare? 
and I'm not being dismissive of the problem. I'm remarking upon the, upon the problem as a person who understands that when you talk about the investments that are made in education, education and law enforcement, that's where your tax dollars go. So you have a say. Don't let anyone ever tell you that you don't have a say. And the power comes when you tell these people, hell no, we won't go. We've gotten so far away from the initial response to, and this is this is more of a general commentary, but you'll see how it ties in. We've gotten so far away from the dramatic response to the George Floyd, mur- um, George Floyd murder in the way that the people immediately responded. What, we, what we're seeing now in terms of Black Lives Matter and, and a lot of the um, the protests and the, the, the quote unquote resistance, a lot of that stuff has been co-opted. The movement's been co-opted and it's disappointing to see because most people see the initial reaction to George Floyd is, oh, those people were violent. Those people were rioting. Understand when, and George Floyd is no Martin Luther King, obviously. Martin Luther King's assassination yielded, I want to say, almost a week of riots that led to legislation. And so we saw that in Minneapolis. We saw that urgency and it played out all throughout the country. But what we've seen, George Floyd was uh, killed late May. So now we're in the middle of July and the movement looks like something entirely different. We have to reclaim that movement right now. And as I sit up here and I think about entanglement and we, and we, and we tie so many things in this, well, you know, I don't feel like I can do anything at the school where, you know, um, I don't feel like I can do anything about uh, the governor. I don't feel like, I, and so all of these things that we allow to tie us down, we got to cut through this stuff, man. And we got to do so in a way that creates effective, immediate, and I'll go ahead and say radical policy, because here's what is needed in education. What's needed in education isn't just a function of protecting the kids. As I said, on, on, I, like I said, I, I feel like because I'm repeating myself now on these podcasts, there needs to be a radical transformation of, edu- of education. If we're going to sit up here and we're going to say Black Lives Matter, if we're going to sit up here and, you know, engage in this movement, understand that the stuff that's being taught in public education is not adequate in a way of accurately telling the history of African-Americans. So if we need to send everybody home to figure this education thing out, I'm fine with that. If we need to send everybody home to figure out this unemployment thing, I'm fine with that. And have the same energy that you have with the corporations and big businesses. Send the checks to the house. And not that weak $1,200 STEMI that you sent the first time. Do what Canada's doing. Send a stimulus check every month. Canada's sending $2,000 a month to people who qualify. Uh, which I'll do the translation for you. It's roughly fourteen hundred American dollars. So that, so they've received fifty six hundred dollars in the same time that we've received twelve hundred dollars. I can't make it any plainer than that. But what what what's going on right now in America is uh, there's no other way to say it. It's a hostage. It's the hostage situation. We are being held captive by bad policymakers and downright evil policy. And maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it's evil policymakers and bad policy. But either way, we're in a bad place in this country right now. And people got to step it up, especially folks who are going to um, say that, hey, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm associating myself with this Black Lives Matter organization. Black Lives Matter is about more than taking down statues. It's about it's about more than changing names. It's about changing lives. And if your movement is not changing lives, if your movement does not have the courage to go to bat for people, look, not just people who um, are of a certain economic class, but for everybody, if you're not going to do that. It's like I said last week, your movement's not worth anything. That may be harsh, but it's a reality. I want to shout out everyone because, like I said, there's so many people who I've associated with, you know, who, you know, I've partnered with who are really trying to do the work and against insurmountable odds because that's what we're, that's a lot of what we're facing right now. We're facing deficits in money. 
Um, like I said, there's a leadership, there's a, there's a moral deficit, all of these things going on. There's still people who are fighting. And like I said, I'm, I'm so grateful for each and every one of you consider me a person who is definitely in the fight. Um, and with that, man, I just want to close out this episode of making a difference again. If you'd like the podcast, share it. Uh, the movements on Facebook, facebook.com backslash making a different show. You can also catch me on Twitter. Um, my handle is difference making M a K I N. Uh, I should have spelled the Facebook, um, address is facebook.com backslash making m-a-k-i-n a different show i just had the good fortune just wrote something dope man for christian science monitor shout out my friends at christian science monitor man um that is a a freelance relationship man they've really allowed me to uh, really express myself as an individual on uh, just various issues man i'm grateful the latest um commentary that i wrote for them uh it's about the intersection of athletes and activism um, and I was able to do that specifically. I had a conversation with a young man, one of the young men um, who has made the transition from a predominantly white institution of PWI to an HBCU, Sharon Wright Jr., whose dad actually was All-American at Clemson and was a lottery pick in 1994 uh, for the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, so I will actually share that on the Facebook page uh, and on the Twitter page. So check me out there and read that if you get some time uh, this weekend or whenever uh, you listen to this podcast. I'm Ken Macon. I love you guys so much. Peace and God bless. The revolution will not be televised. You see, a lot of times people see, 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 see battles and skirmishes on TV and they say, aha, the revolution is being televised. Nah, the results of the revolution are being televised. The first revolution is when you change your mind about how you look at things and see that there might be another way to look at it that you have not been shown. What you see later on is the results of that, but the revolution, that change that takes place will not be televised.